Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 400. 400. Of the Professional Book Nerds podcast presented by Overdrive. This is Jill. Hello, Adam. How's it going? Good. How are you? I'm great. Nice, even, soothing round number, 400. 400. We've talked to each other so many times in this little tiny room. I saw this tweet going around the other day about how you should just do the thing, but like your first blog post is going to be terrible. Your first video is going to be terrible. Your first podcast episode is going to be terrible. I think we usually tell people like the first 10 episodes are terrible. (laughs) We were figuring it out as we went, for sure. Mm -hmm. And not only that, we didn't know anything about sound editing or adjust- and i just remember you being like i have a multi-directional microphone let's just use that in a big room with- yeah that does not work out so well so there was one room that was okay we would like go down to win that was usually okay yeah we did. when we, had- we were in the tiny tiny room yeah the sound bounced okay this one room that worked but we also not to like toot our own horn but like now we have a room that's designed for us re- to record podcasts when we first started no one in the no one around here really knew that we were doing what we were doing. We we're like, "Hey, we need that room to record a conversation about uh, books." And they're like, "What are you talking about?" You have so. to edit out the sound from the hand dryer. Yeah, because the bathroom right door next, door, next door. door. Oh man! So yes, we've, <laughs> I forgot all about that. We've come a long, long way. Mm. Today is episode four hundred. Do you want to tell people what we did? Yeah. So this is actually something. We have been wanting to do for a while, but full disclosure, the person has a very, very busy schedule. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> so we um, have on our podcast the CEO and founder of Overdrive, Steve Potash. Yes. It was so much fun um, on a like a genuine note. like He founded the company that we work for, and it's this global company, and it's this massive deal, obviously. But like, on just like a personal note, as a person, he's so... Like, his energy is so infectious. It's People always ask us at Overdrive or, like, at trade shows, like, how do you all – you're always in such good moods and, like, you're always so energetic. And, like, honestly, it's top down. It starts with Steve, his passion. He is – even now, having built this basically ebook empire, I guess you could call it, like, he's still involved in so many small things. Like, he doesn't really need to be, but he's just passionate about everything. Correct. And so a lot of that shines through. This was the easiest – this is the least we've ever spoke during a – a, yes. a, a podcast because we would ask him a question and then he would just go and yep. I noticed I was re-listening to it to make sure everything sounded good and like there's a few times like it he's just he's we ask him a question and then he'll basically he'll get to the answer like five minutes later but in between those five minutes it's like he's building up to the answer and it's he's a shockingly good storyteller for someone who is not shocking for someone who works yeah (laughs) but steve just went like he has told me before like he reads nonfiction basically exclusively yes Yes. so someone who's so like steeped in real life stuff like he should write a a fiction he should write a novel someday he's a very good storyteller yeah also i will say this is going to be part one of this because we spoke with him for like 35 or 37 minutes and we just got to the part where overdrive starts working with libraries um because Peek behind the curtain, this company did not start as a library company, and it's actually, it's existed since the 80s. Correct. Um, 
So he shares really cool stories about working with Bill Gates and then also a fun story about how the company got its name and all sorts of really great stuff. So uh, I think you guys will really enjoy it. I hope you did. If nothing else, we <laughs> really enjoyed like nerding out with Steve and I'm excited to get to do it again a few times. So we'll get to that in a second. But something we don't do during this conversation is talk about books. So I figured you and I could just say a book or two that we're reading before we get to it. So what's something you're currently enjoying? So I'm reading The Great Pretender by uh, Susanna Cahalan. I talked about this. It came out this month, I think. Um, so I must have talked about it in our December books episode. Um, so Susanna had written previously Brain on Fire. Um, and this is about kind of the... I don't want to say it's about the mental health industry, but it's kind of about the mental health industry. Mm-hmm. And um, she had read a um, about a study, true study um, out of Stanford. Stanford and their experiments, man, back in like the 70s. <laughs> um, and she'd read about a um, where eight people basically kind of faked mental illness to get into institutions. Um, and to sort of give an inside look into what institutions look like and also asking the question, like, can doctors really tell insane people from sane people? Um, And it's just this, like, whole fascinating thing because that's how it starts and then it kind of goes off into this other thing um, once she starts digging in and also just sort of looking at this idea of insanity from a very kind of big picture place. So it's really interesting. That is such a Jill book. It is such a Jill book. That's right up your alley. Um, I have two, one super old and one so new that it's not out yet. Uh, I re-listened to Hercule Poirot's Christmas by Agatha Christie. This is a very Agatha Christie time of year for me, as we've discussed in the past. I have a cyclical reading pattern and that, yes. Quasi-related, have you seen Knives Out? Haven't seen Knives Out. It is on our shortlist of movies to go see. It's really good. Yes. I knew you were going to – I've seen people relate it to mm-hmm. Agatha Christie. It book, is. So. Um, but, yeah, it's very much a Poirot murder mystery if you like Agatha Christie and you've never read that one. Check it out. And then the other one I'm just finishing is All the Stars and Teeth by Adeline Grace. That comes out, I think, the first week of February. Adeline's going to be on the podcast. But she is um, like best friends with Tomi Adeyemi of – Naturally. Virginia. Yeah, and uh, – they both wrote these incredible fantasies kind of at the same time with each other's assistance. And it's almost like if you enjoy Children of Blood and Bone, it's like Children of Blood and Bone on the sea. It's There's pirates and there's mermaids and there's 12 different clans that have their own specific magic. And there is a, uh, a princess who has to kind of keep everyone together. And there's a specific magic that the royal lineage has access to that no one else can perform. And something she tries to perform it to prove her worth as the next ruler of the whole kind of empire uh, at the beginning of the book and something goes awry and then throughout the book it's her trying to um, prove herself and then realizing that things aren't exactly what they seem and it's just it's so fun like I said there's pirates and there's ships as people long listeners know if you tell me that there's pirates and it's like a lady on the sea that's such that's all I need to hear. I don't need any more. So uh, that's All the Stars and Teeth by Adeline Grace, and it comes out, said, I think, at the beginning of February. So definitely check that out. Um, if people want to get a hold of us, how can they do that? Then go to our website, professionalbooknerds.com. I almost forgot that there for a minute. My brain froze. Um, <laughs> okay. 
And from there, you can get all of our social links. We are on Twitter and Instagram at ProBookNerds. You can email us at ProfessionalBookNerds at Overdrive.com. We have our Viber community on there. There's all sorts of ways to get a hold of us. And speaking of emailing us, if you haven't yet, we've got a ton of people doing this. So if you are participating in our Professional Book Nerds Reading Challenge, definitely send in your completed uh, list by the end of this year. We're getting a ton of those. I love seeing all the books people have read. It's cool to see that a lot of them are like recommendations that we Mm -hmm. gave them, which is nice. Uh, So at the end of the year, we'll pick a winner and we'll send you a device and we'll soon be announcing our 2020 reading challenge, which we have put together now. We have put together now. So it's all ready and uh, we'll be talking about that soon. So uh, anything else you think people should know about? I don't think so. Cool. All right. Well, I will let you get to this very fun and unique 400th episode of the Professional Book Nerds podcast with our founder and CEO, Steve Potash. Hey, everybody. So we have been doing this podcast for about four years. This is Adam and Jill, but we are doing something completely different that we have never done today. Throughout our 400 episodes of this podcast, we've had authors and illustrators and narrators, but we've never had on the person who's the reason that we both get to do this every single day. So we are extremely excited to be joined by the CEO, founder, and president of Overdrive, and the reason that we both have jobs, (laughs) Steve Potash. Steve, Thank you for joining us today. My pleasure, Adam and Jill. I am a big fan of the work that you do, <laughs> not good. only on the audio front, but uh, the work you do every day, uh, providing guidance and partnership and engagement with so many uh, stakeholders yeah. that we engage with as part of our partnership with authors, yeah. publishers, libraries, educators, and, and book lovers. Yeah. So we, we wanted to kind of tell people the story of Overdrive because, first off, it goes back a lot longer than people realize. Um, and we're just going to kind of start from the beginning. So where did the idea of Overdrive come from all those years back for you? Well, thank you for that question. And I will say that I'm born and raised here in Cleveland and came from uh, parents that were immigrants without any higher education. And my father was an entrepreneur and I think instilled in me and my my siblings the work ethic that knew if we were going to be successful, we had to earn it. And so while I was a student, even before high school, I started looking at opportunities to learn to become a, a young entrepreneur. And that continued through my um, undergraduate days at Ohio State. And when I graduated Ohio State, I determined I wanted to continue trying to learn how to build and grow businesses. So I went to law school at nights. And it was during the period that I was practicing, uh, just as as I finished law school and got admitted to practice, as again, an entrepreneur with some business interests, I also wanted to try out this new law license they gave me. Uh, By then I was married, starting a young family, but there was this pesky uh, task. Practicing law required producing hundreds and hundreds of pages of documents and forms. Mm -hmm. And all those documents and forms were in the law books. Mm -hmm. And so in the late 70s, I tried to see if I could take content that was in the law books, Mm -hmm. either the research or the forms 
or the templates for constructing documents or pleadings or um, other uh, agreements and see if maybe as an entrepreneur I could find a way to automate it mm-hmm. using at the time dedicated word processing. In the late 70s, this was well before the PC came along. Mm-hmm. So one thing led to another. By the early 80s, I had developed routines that took many of the most common law books, documents, and forms, and kind of created a Rube Goldberg contraption <laughs> of macros using daisy wheel printers, where in the evenings, when the secretaries were gone, mm-hmm. I could kick off routines that would produce piles of paper used to process and and move forward these um, legal cases. I was, as a young practicing attorney. Mm -hmm. That led to the idea, if I could take the technology I was working on and partner with the book publishers, we could create a new digital product that would be an extension of the print book Mm-hmm. Make it more useful, more productive, if I could only get the publishers to agree to maybe a business relationship with me. So that was the very earliest idea that led me in early, mid-80s to say, well, who's the, who's the biggest law book publisher in the country? <laughs> and at the time, and possibly still today, it's West Publishing. Mm-hmm. Uh, They were headquartered in, at the time, St. Paul, Minnesota. Mm -hmm. And I reached out to say, I would like to come up and present a potential partnership where with my technology and your book content, we can create this new electronic publication. Mm -hmm. By the way, this was the era of floppy diskettes. (laughs) Good old floppies. Yes. And I'm not talking about the three and a half hard plastic shell. Mm I'm talking about the real floppy, which was five and a quarter. When they first came out in 83, you can only store a maximum of 160K (laughs) on one disc. So how how many are, like, what is a a law book if you're trying to put something out? Like, how many floppies do you need to... A lot. lot. (laughs) And one of the other catalysts that made this all happen, while I was working with dedicated word processors in the day... Law offices were using IBM Mini Systems or DEC or Wang Mm -hmm. for automating their document production, word processing. Uh, But it was in 83 when the first IBM PC came to market with DOS Mm 1.0. I then said to my wife, Lori, who was also an attorney and a librarian, let's go to Sears and with our (laughs) Sears credit card, get one of these new appliances for the kitchen table. (laughs) And so in 83, I brought home this because I had no computing or programming background. Mm -hmm. So we brought home and put on the kitchen table this new appliance. Um, This is before hard drives. Yeah. And so actually to develop a program or operate any application, everything had to be put on a floppy diskette and fed sequentially into the PC to load into the memory of the machine. So it was under that original environment we, we presented and wound up entering into a partnership with West Publishing in the mid-80s to create a series of electronic law books, mm-hmm. which went to market. Yeah. By the way, this was the first time I thought, 
I made it. Yeah. <laughs> this was a big, this was a big turning point. We are now going to be the yeah. most successful electronic publishing partner mm -hmm. technology company. And let's just say in the 86, 87 timeframe, together with Wes, we did produce several hundred mm -hmm. state-specific electronic book products and floppy diskettes, mm -hmm. which Wes was introducing and attempting to sell into the legal market. We were probably about 20 years too early, <laughs> just to be uh, blunt. I was going to say, you, you mentioned um, the, that was the like, if you first, like, I think I made it moment. We have a lot of those. Though, yeah, there were a lot of moments that I thought, this is it. Yeah. I, I mean, just like thinking back that it was like the 80s that you had the, the foresight, but yeah, you might have been a little too early. To... Yeah. Well, I then said, well, maybe the legal market is a little too conservative and slow. But I will tell you one of the most painful points of launching a company and starting to support a product, besides these law book forms, and I was then applying for a patent because this was early almost AI today. We created a product with Wes that if an attorney or a paralegal could load a software product and answer a series of questions, and our technology would assemble all the relevant pages and components customize a document precisely based on state law or based on the variable information of the client and assemble a complex legal document. I call at the time MIDAS, which was an acronym for Multiple Integrated Document Assembly System. Mm -hmm. That led to a patent, actually. Um, and it meant that the productivity gains were, as an attorney, if you had a small business and maybe wanted to create a benefit plan for your employees, let's say, like a 401k, you could insert the West um, product, floppy diskettes into your software product in about 15 minutes, answer all the pertinent questions about the business, and it would automatically assemble and generate, rule-based, a pre-approved IRS 401k plan. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, yeah, this is cool stuff. Yeah. So how does how does this go from, you, you mentioned your wife is a librarian who famously, we all know that around here in the office, but how do you go from all of these legal documents and kind of being able to set up people's like financial planning? How does that get into, okay, let's make digital content available through libraries? Well, there's a few steps in the middle. Yeah. So being that the West product didn't take off with the commercial, let's say, mm -hmm. uh, momentum we had hoped, I then determined, well, we're now showing professional publishers how they can create new uh, extensions mm -hmm. of their book-based content and monetize it. And we were a trusted partner tech, with the technology to protect, copyright, manage, and, and audit use and sales. So I then started to say, maybe we can go to accounting or tax. Mm -hmm. And that was the next extension. <clears throat> it wasn't long before I was in New York working with both McGraw-Hill Professional Publishing and John Wiley and Sons. Mm -hmm. And they introduced us and gave us opportunities to build for those companies either um, in John Wiley accounting tools for um, even um, preparing for the CPA exam. In the case of McGraw-Hill, we were going into the professional product line of books, big series like Games Trainers Play for Managers or reference materials. And by this time, CD-ROM was starting to enter the market. This was early 90s, late 80s. And so we were building IBM Dictionary Computing for McGraw-Hill and other products. So we saw that 
the basic formula of Overdrive being a trusted partner to book publishers and helping them create and monetize and protect their intellectual property and create an extension of their book and their brand, help them find new audiences, new authors. And again, that's not too far different from what we do today. So that led to, well, when I started going to New York, and by the way, in those days, I used to have to travel with the only portable PC operating since the time was a compact, mm-hmm. you know, made by a Texas manufacturer. And the earliest units, which were monochrome orange screen, this was all pre windows. <laughs> all you saw was a flashing cursor. Uh huh. Um, were the size of like a large sewing machine. Oh my God. Oh my gosh. So, yes, yeah, like about 40 pounds. And I used to have those old kind of luggage carts with the bungee cords. Yeah. And, and New York at the time didn't have all those wheelchair accessible ramps. <laughs> yeah. So traveling around uh, Midtown, Manhattan, or up and down Broadway or 5th and 6th Avenue yeah. with this uh, uh, very heavy uh, yeah. <laughs> luggage cart <laughs> to go into the office and set up to a publisher and say, this is the future of selling your book. <laughs> those are some fun days. Yeah. But when Windows came around and we started to get, you know, um, color and graphical uh, user interfaces, Mm -hmm. uh, things really started to open up and that's when we started to introduce ourselves to what was now Hachette, used to be Time Warner Book Group. Mm -hmm. And we said what professional and reference publishings are doing has real opportunity for trade publishers, popular material in the... uh, in the late 80s and early 90s, we built a series of consumer um, books for Time Warner Book Group on floppy diskettes, and they were called Time Warner Quick Reads. Mm-hmm. And these were things where the computer could answer questions and bring up information for popular consumer-based books, yeah. like you know Bartlett's Quotations, uh-huh. or put in a few recipes and see what you can concoct from Mr. Boston's Bartender Guide. Yeah. <laughs> Or CD-ROM for Simon & Schuster on the pill book Mm -hmm. while you're trying to diagnose what should I be doing or what pill is this Mm -hmm. or what are the adverse effects. So it was in the early 90s and with CD-ROM we started to become a known uh, partner to many of the popular consumer and trade book publishers. Um, Was the company called Overdrive at that point? Like did you have the name? Because I think I've heard you say how the name Overdrive came about. Well, the name Overdrive came about after I had started and in the 80s, I opened an office outside Seattle in Bellevue, Washington. Mm-hmm. Um, in the 80s, trying to raise some seed capital to help us grow the business in Cleveland, Ohio was very challenging mm-hmm. or impossible. That's yeah. <laughs> I mean, in the 80s in Northeast Ohio, you could raise money if you were putting up a retail shopping center or maybe an apartment complex, yeah. but software no one knew from. There hadn't been success stories. So the biggest successes in those days was Microsoft and some of the uh, tech companies in the Pacific Northwest mm-hmm. or around Silicon Valley. So based on friends that I had, I went out to Seattle. We opened up a small office, our overdrive in Bellevue, Washington, and we did some initial um fundraising from some private investors. And it was around that time, I always was a big fan of the success of Bill Gates and Microsoft. So when we were developing our original um, electronic law book products, I actually 
got a call from Bill Gates's office at the time, and this was in the 80s, yeah. asking if I would be available to meet with them and then join them for lunch, which I did. <laughs> at that meeting, along with several of his team, he indicated how Microsoft was looking to enter into the office productivity space. They were mostly known for their operating system, DOS and the versions followed by Windows. And he said that if they were going to enter the office production, he was, he was working on a new product called Microsoft Word. And to introduce Word 1.0, he knew that the market would have to find professional and business users adopting it. Sure. At the time, the dominant use in the legal practice of word processing was by WordPerfect mm -hmm. out of Utah. And prior to that, it was WordStar, MicroPro out of California. And he says, if we're going to have any credibility, we'd like to get a way to have lawyers really look at Microsoft Word as their a more productive option. Would I be willing to take what I was doing working with automating document forms for legal practice and create this kind of productivity? And I said, sure. He then said, I'm going to assign you to work with a, a young product manager here by the name of Melinda French. So I was introduced to Melinda, and for six months, uh, Overdrive's team and Melinda, we put together and released a product called Overdrive for Word, which was an add-on complement that could automatically, with the Word software installed, instantly create a large variety of commonly used legal documents and form and customize them as we had done uh, originally with West. That led to uh, really um, a lifelong partnership to this day that we still enjoy with Microsoft. Mm -hmm. um, as you know, um, Bill has moved on to uh, uh, his roles as chairman and, and, and advisor, and Melinda is uh, with the foundation, of course. Yeah. But um, Microsoft became an early investor in OverDrive. Um, out of admiration, the company at that time was called TurboSoft. Okay. All right. Uh -huh. I like the soft part, and we thought that with our tools and our technology, and I'm a car guy. Yeah. I've always loved cars, and even today, just that's another podcast. <laughs> but um, so Turbo, which came from the thought of even the word overdrive is in the automotive sense, shift into overdrive means that you're getting into the highest, most efficient gear. Get there faster, yeah. use less RPM and fuel, so shift into overdrive and turbo, as you know in the automotive, is another way to um, accelerate right. your performance uh, you know, with uh, great efficiency mm -hmm. with turbochargers, which are pretty standard now in almost every uh, uh, you know, um, automotive uh, gas engine. Yeah. So with that, I ran into a little snag. <laughs> At the time, one of the um, most successful software companies was a company called Borland. Mm -hmm. And it was founded and led by their, at the time, uh, very successful entrepreneur by the name of Philippe Kahn. Mm -hmm. And Borland had a whole series of software products in the programming language that used the word turbo. Turbo C, Turbo Pascal, yeah. Turbo Basic. And I wound up getting um, um, a a legal letter. It's like a cease and desist? Cease and desist letter from a major law firm uh, suggesting I needed to 
dropped the use of the word turbo in my TurboSoft company uh, as it might be infringing on their trademarks and yeah. service marks. Um, after weighing all of the pros and cons, I decided I need a new name. There's a little more to the story, but we just yeah. got to the chase. So I was sitting in a leased Nissan Maxima uh -huh. that actually I had recovered from a former uh, employee who left the company, but uh -huh. we were on the hook for the lease. And so I was sitting there in the car forlorn. I was looking at the stick, the center console gear shifter. Yeah. And on the side of that handle was a little button and it was the overdrive button. Yeah. And if you touch that button while you were driving, it would put your car into this high gear mm -hmm. more faster, more efficiently. So I said, overdrive. <laughs> let's, yeah. let's use that. I love that. It's just, it's just right there. That was right it. There. Yeah. Just right and there. it stuck. Oh, it sure has. People now know that all around the world because well, you're sitting in that car. <laughs> about eight years later, I was watching the Super Bowl and the halftime was being sponsored by GM and it was the Overdrive halftime show. Oh. Everybody was calling me up. They go, what? Yeah. This was when sock puppets were spending uh, millions of dollars for yeah. I said, no, that ain't us. <laughs> so there are a lot of other Overdrives in the market mm -hmm. and we've been approached. Um, by uh, many of them, but uh, we are proud of the Overdrive and Overdrive.com brand and reputation. Yeah, absolutely. Speaking of, how can you sort of tell us the story of how you first started getting into libraries with ebooks? We heard from Cindy and Tish way back their side of it. Um, so we, I mean, I think we'd love to hear from your perspective how you entered that market. Mm -hmm. Certainly. Well. You know, in the 90s, CD-ROM was providing us some growth and opportunity. But as we were getting to the end of the 90s, and it was 2000, it was just the dawn of the online world and the web world becoming a opportunity for publishers to not only promote, but to provide discovery, purchase and delivery and fulfillment of a digital book that could be read on a screen or audio that could be listened to both streaming online or for download offline use. But also it was at the time that there was a lot of um, investment around 2000 where there were early investments in hardware, mobile operating systems. Remember back to Palm Pilot or Apple Newton or the first generation of e-readers, Softbook, rocket book. Mm -hmm. These e-ink devices, these new PDAs around 99-2000 started to enter the scene. Overdrive was all in. We were partnering now with all the major trade publishers to create opportunities to test and get a new retail ebook business going because there would be this whole new generation of folks reading on a mobile device, either an e-ink device or these larger PDAs like Palm Pilot, Newton, and the like. We invested heavily, as did many did, and we also created an open industry standard which became EPUB, which I was and Overdrive team members were involved. But by 01, this dot-com bubble of 99-2000 was starting to burst. And again, you have to realize that Kindle Amazon's Kindle wasn't introduced until 2007. Mm -hmm. 
as a real consumer appliance that got some mainstream awareness. But it really wasn't until the introduction of Apple's iPad, which was in 09 and really the spring of 2010, that digital reading on a screen, mobile reading, really started to gain traction. Mm -hmm with the larger format and the more competent devices, color, and operating system. So around the dot-com bubble, 0102 it burst. And quite frankly, OverDrive had thought in the prior years that we were extraordinarily well-positioned working for the Random Houses and Simon & Schuster's. We had stood up retail e-bookstores for barnesandnoble.com, for Adobe, we had many of these all over the world. Overdrive was the largest aggregator and supplier for digital books you can download and purchase through dozens of retail websites. One by one, in late 01 and 02, one by one, all of those companies realized it was too early, the market was not there, and ebook almost became a dirty word. Mm -hmm. I was really down, and it was in 02. We had relationships with the publishers. We had built the inventory. We already had an operating digital marketplace, which is today Overdrive Marketplace, yeah. which was up and running. Publishers uploading their titles, setting their geo rights, permissions and pricing, and plugging in trusted retail outlets who could face consumers. It was at that point that a famous turning point with Lori Potash, who had been a co-founder and, and Thanks to her job at Case Western Reserve, I had benefits and could make the rent <laughs> and pay the bills while we were going through these up and down. Uh, she basically said, Steve, with all of the technology and all of the inventory relationships you have with the publishers, why don't you try and go to a group of librarians and see if you can pull together a platform service and, and solution that might be of interest to librarians? And that was the best advice I had. What I did was it was the summer of 2002. Overdrive was not in any institutional business at that time, but because we had partnerships with Adobe, I got a badge from Adobe who had an exhibitor stand at Summer ALA 2002. It was down in Atlanta, Georgia, I think in the Omni Center. And I went down there just as I had Steve Potash and I had an Adobe exhibitor badge. Mm -hmm. And I went down there just to stand in the booth to talk to librarians to see if we have access to all these ebooks, we have access to these platforms and technologies for searching and downloading. Maybe there's something we can pull together that be of interest. And it was on that, uh, it was on the show floor at ALA that summer that I was approached by several librarians who said that they were extraordinarily frustrated that public libraries did not have a solution that would fit their vision of serving their readers in their community and how they wanted readers to go to the library website, log in with their library card, browse a selection of titles that the librarians selected and curated, not these bundled databases mm -hmm. or you know one size fits all across the communities. They wanted to select the books. They wanted it to be integrated with their ILS, which I didn't know what that was at the time, <laughs> et cetera, et cetera. And I said, hold on, this is perfect. I came to ALA to try and understand if we could build such a service that would meet the needs of a library and librarians. And so I asked these ladies, 
where are you from? And they turned to me and they said, we're from the Cleveland Public Library, Cleveland, Ohio. And so, you know, kismet. Yeah, light bulbs. I said, I will buy you a year's worth of breakfast, lunch, and dinner if me and my team can come down to your library and you can tell us how you want it to work. And the rest is history. And it was with the help of brilliant librarians, starting with, um, at the time, who invested in us was their deputy director, Sari Feldman, mm-hmm. who left Cleveland Public to become the well-renowned former now retired executive director of Cuyahoga County. And she had an amazing team with her, it included Tracy Strobel, who was their web services electronic librarian, who is today the executive mm-hmm. director of Cuyahoga County, and Patricia Lowry and Cindy Orr, operations and collection development. And it was under their guidance we developed the first popular ebook and audiobook lending system that went live with Cleveland Public Library spring of 2003. Mm-hmm. And as they say, the rest is history. Yeah. So I've already, we've already decided that this is, we want to kind of make this a little mini series with you because I know we don't have a ton of time <laughs> and there's so many things that we want to get to, all of the, the milestones of Harry Potter and Kindle and um, working with schools and Libby and Sora. So we're, we're gonna get, we'll get to that, we'll, we'll schedule more time with you, but I am curious, kind of before we, I think a good place to stop is, when people go to their libraries now in Libby or their school library in Sora, and especially when the librarians go into our marketplace to purchase, they expect to see, and they do, just, they see just about every book that's available in real time, but when you were first working with Cleveland Public, you didn't have all of the content from the publishers, correct? They were still a little, hesitant to make it available that's an understatement yeah (laughs) from day one when we launched popular ebook lending from cleveland public and i'm going to proudly say the work we did with cleveland public was very quickly followed up with some amazing librarians all over the country Mm -hmm. and some outside the u.s who became the real true pioneers for what everyone is experiencing and enjoying today Mm Um, too many to mention right now. Yes. But when we did this, the misinformation about public library digital book lending existed as the baseline of understanding. Mm-hmm. Uh, when we launched with Cleveland Public, at the time there were in the U.S. what they were calling then the big six. Today with the merger of Penguin and Random House is now the big five. Mm-hmm. But at that time when we launched, and for the first year or two, we had no titles from any of the big six because they were not fully educated and comfortable with how they were going to manage that business for ebook lending from a public library. But we had tremendous support from hundreds of publishers Mm -hmm. that were not the big six. And we've had continuous support for 20 years from so many great publishing houses where it is not as complicated where we have a a New York Times bestselling author who is now being represented by a major literary agent or agency and a a more complex royalty reporting and advance uh, business. So we understood it would take time for us to educate and demonstrate 
how the work of public librarians day in and day out to provide additional opportunities for readers of all ages and all interests to discover and benefit from a public library, we knew ultimately this would win the business model of being a participant for libraries to have lending for the titles. But in the earliest days, it was a challenge. And I'm proud to say the first breakthrough was when HarperCollins entered public library ebook lending mm -hmm. as the first of the big six. Mm -hmm. And they have continuously, they were followed by all of them yeah. in their own terms and with their own stories. But HarperCollins, I got to give credit for being the, the most um, astute at understanding and appreciating and really studying um, the various options to best serve their business, their investors, their authors, and of course, readers. I think this is, I, yeah. this is a good place to, to stop. I, this might be my favorite thing we've ever done on the podcast. This is so interesting, and we're fortunate that we work in the office that you're in. So even though you're very busy, <laughs> we'll be able to find some more time with you. So th seriously, thank, thank you, you for sitting down. This is so much fun. Well, as a teaser, I can't wait to tell you all of the, um, um, the wins and uh, we've stubbed our toes more than once. <laughs> and if it wasn't for the great guidance of librarians from coast to coast mm -hmm. and now actually globally, globally yeah. that um, we've been able to, since that 2002 early date with librarians, mm -hmm. constantly innovate in ways to try and um, deliver on the mission as, as librarians are, are still defining it. So it's our, it's kind of our duty now to continue to yeah. improve and, and delight readers. Well, we don't normally get to end on cliffhangers, I but know, this is don't. exciting. So thank you for joining us today. My Steve. pleasure. Thanks, Jill. Thanks, Adam. Readers can sample and borrow the titles mentioned in today's episode from Overdrive.com, and our library friends can purchase these titles in Marketplace. Professional Book Nerds is proud to be an Evergreen Podcast signature program. To learn about other Evergreen podcasts, visit evergreenpodcasts.com. Our podcast is produced, recorded, and edited by Adam Sokol and Jill Grunewald and presented by Rakuten Overdrive. For more information, visit professionalbooknerds.com. Hey, hey there. there! I'm Hannah. And I'm Audrey. We are a sister filmmaking duo and co-hosts of Sleepover Cinema, our show where we analyze the films that created the collective unconscious of the girls, gays, and theys of the late 90s and early 2000s. Princess Diaries, The Cheetah Girls, Aquamarine, Cinderella, the one starring Brandy. We haven't stopped thinking about these movies since we first saw them, and we want you to rewatch them and review them with us. Are these movies as bad as critics would have us believe? Do we even care if they are? We are always unpacking that very question on Sleepover Cinema. Check out Sleepover Cinema wherever you get your podcasts or at evergreenpodcasts.com. See you soon.